Happy Easter. Happy Easter, Father. It's a great joy to be with you this morning. It's also a great joy to read the readings. I, uh, so as a seminarian, like one of your pro- one of the stages you go through is going to the ministry of, of lector. And you get to like kneel in for the bishop and he hands you the Bible. And there's all these prayers that are said. And then you become a priest and you never read the readings ever again. It's really kind of these weird things. So, hey, I got to read the readings today. And today's gospel is t- traditionally known as what? The gospel of the Doubting Thomas. And who chanted our psalm today? I'm telling you people, get ready, something's going to happen here. Okay. Last week, 3,200 Catholics went to Holy Mass on Easter Sunday. Last week, exactly one week ago today, it was Easter Sunday. Today is the eighth day. It's known as the octave. Eight days later, we celebrate what is known as Divine Mercy Sunday. This beautiful image that is here to the left of the altar is the image of Divine Mercy. In 1937, a Polish nun, St. Faustina Kowalska, in Krakow, Poland, was asked by God to have this painting made. Jesus had been appearing to her. She'd been having visions of Jesus. At the direction of her spiritual director, she began to write down what Jesus said to her. Jesus also asked her to have this painting made. This painting is, according to St. Faustina, not just how Jesus appeared to her, but how Jesus appeared on that first Easter night, which is the reading that we had today. Our gospel passage today encapsulates two Sundays, the resurrection, but then also a week later when Thomas was in the room. This image of our Lord, and we also have our statue over here of Jesus dressed up, this image of our Lord of divine mercy is that image of Jesus walking into the room. So I want you to look at this image just for a moment because this is going to be very important for today's homily. And now I want to ask a question. Was there a fist or was there a feast? Was there a fist or was there a feast? Two thousand years ago, in that upper room were the apostles. How many apostles are there? But in that room that night, there weren't 12 apostles. One of them, Judas, had already committed suicide after betraying our Lord. Thomas happened to not be there. So that would leave 10. Out of those 10 apostles, how many of them were present at Jesus' crucifixion? Which means that nine of those men that are in that upper room had abandoned our Lord at his greatest hour of need. Nine of those men in that room had abandoned Jesus. They were not there. He, 
when he was flogged. They were not there when they mocked him, put a crown on his head. They were not there when they pressed the shoulder, the cross upon his shoulders. They were not there when he carried the cross to the streets. They were not there when they pierced his hands and his feet with nails. They were not there when they raised the cross, and they were not there when they pierced his sides. They were not there when they took his body down, and they were not there at the, at the tomb. Nine men who had abandoned our Lord at his greatest hour. One who was there. I would like to have all of you imagine just for a moment. I'll speak to women right now, particularly wives. If you've been diagnosed with the most horrific form of cancer, we're going to go through chemotherapy, radiation, suffer and die, and be buried. And your husband, on the day of your diagnosis, chose to walk away from you. And then you came back to life. <laughs> Gentlemen, would you be scared? I ask the question because I think we have to ask what was going on in that upper room. Because you see, my brothers and sisters, nine of these men had abandoned Jesus at his most crucial hour. And now three witnesses who are not apostles are testifying to the fact that they have seen him alive. If we read the gospel accounts, three people encountered Jesus in the resurrection prior to him coming and greeting the apostles. The first one is Mary Magdalene. The, all the women go to the tomb early on Easter Sunday morning, but after the women leave, Mary remains weeping, and Mary encounters the risen Christ. She believes that he's the gardener. She goes back and gets Peter and John, which is what you heard last weekend. Peter and John run to the tomb. John is faster than Peter. Who are the other people besides Mary Magdalene? It's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, not apostles, two disciples. So none of the apostles had encountered the risen Lord. I will tell you that that door was locked for more than just fear of the Jews. I will tell you also why they were terrified. And it's clear in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels mentions something that is crucial. And that is what is found in the tomb. The body is not found in the tomb, but in all four Gospels, what is mentioned as being in the tomb? The burial cloths. So I'd like on this morning when we talk about a feast or a fist to look at the burial cloths of Jesus. I need some really tall people. So there's some high school boys back here that are really tall. If I can get the Bobos to come up, and I need this guy right here. Yeah, come on. I need all three of you. Come down. You're the next contestants on St. Teresa. So notice I'm going to the tomb. And out of the tomb, I'm pulling some burial cloths. Okay? This is a 14-foot 
These guys are 14 foot tall. Stand over there. This is a 14 foot piece of cloth, okay? Now, the Jewish people were not the Romans. When they buried someone, the way they buried them is they would take a 14 foot piece of cloth, they would open it up. Come here. Go up that top step. Turn around. There we go. Top step. Top step. Turn around. Play dead. Play dead. <laughs> He'll remember this for the rest of his life. This is how the Jewish people buried their dead. A burial shroud or a burial cloth would be laid under their body and then placed up and then laid over the top of the body. Remember that Jesus died at 3 o'clock and Sabbath begins at 5. They had two hours to get his body off the cross into the tomb because you could not work on Friday night if you were a faithful Jew. Now, you did a really good job at that. Stand up. <laughs> Gentlemen, top step. This is the burial cloth of Jesus. One of you is going to hold it in the center. Other you took the tent, the ends, and stretch all the way out. This is the burial cloth of Jesus. This is what is now known as the Shroud of Turin because it is housed in Turin, Italy. Now, when you first look at this piece of cloth, the first thing that you notice are these really dark images, right? The dark triangular-like shapes. So I'd like to show you what those are. Please let go. The Shroud of Turin would have been the burial cloth that was found in the tomb. It also would have been in the upper room with the apostles. And I believe this is one of the reasons why they were absolutely terrified. The Shroud of Turin, eventually, was folded in three. Which is why these dark markings are here and here. The Shroud of Turin was then again Sorry, my folding skills were not my best. I apologize. I didn't have it exactly where it needs to be. I apologize. Just follow me. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. The shroud turn was folded in three, which explains the dark edges along here. It was then folded again here and here. A box was made for it with a glass opening to reveal the face of Jesus. The Shroud of Turin was very seldomly ever unfolded in its entirety. This case in 1532 and the Shroud itself were in the care of a group of religious sisters and their convent was set on fire. The case, which was lined in silver, burnt. And the edges, which were then sewed with patches upon them and cared for by the religious sisters. So here we go. That is what those images are that you see, but I want you to actually pull that down that way. I want you to actually try to not see those singe marks, which would not have been on there until 1532. And I want you to look at the shroud, and I want you to pretend that you're the apostles in the upper room. What would you have seen? 
Well, you clearly would have seen the effects in the aftermath of what you as a coward ran away from. Which is your best friend and the man that you followed for three years. And what happened to him? Well, we'll do it in the order that it happened. First, you see a man who was flogged by Romans. Romans were meticulous in everything they did. The way that a Roman flogged a criminal is you had a four-foot post. They were stripped naked. They were tied to the post. Two soldiers took turns. One would stand on his right, and the other would stand on his left. They would then take turns flogging the victim, one from the left, one from the right. One from the left, one from the right. It explains why the marks of the scourging are in a hash mark pattern all the way down the back and the front because the victim was flogged on both sides of their body. He was then crowned with thorns. You'll notice upon Jesus' head the blood stains from the crown of thorns that punctured his skull. You'll also notice the blood stains are on the back of the head. You'll then notice that this individual was crucified. We see the exit wounds in both the feet, on the top, and the bottom. We also notice here, where his hands are laid upon each other, the exit wound here. What is interesting is this. If you're wearing a crucifix right now, I want you to, if you can see it, if you can look at it, I can guarantee you something. That that image that you have of our crucified Lord, the nails are in the hands of the victim. If you look at the crucifix that we have here in the Stations of the Cross, you will see that they are in the hands. You will notice that the crucifix that we have here at St. Teresa of the Cross is one of the only crucifixes you'll ever see in your life that is actually accurate. You may not know that after the fall of the Roman Empire, it was illegal to draw or depict a crucifixion. The Italians were so embarrassed that that's how they tortured their people that they made it illegal to depict in art crucifixions. It was also a way to persecute Christians. So several generations went by with no one ever depicting crucifixion. When Christians began in the growth of Christianity and the growth of the arts to depict Christianity, they had no image in their mind because they had never seen a crucifixion. In the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, it says they have pierced my hands and my feet. So where did they put the nails? In the hands. However, if you were to put nails into someone's hand and hang them from a cross, it wouldn't support the weight. It wasn't until archaeologists began digging up the bodies of crucifixion victims that they actually found that crucifixion always took place through the wrist. Some people will say that the Shroud of Turin is a forgery and it was made up in the Middle Ages. And yet that is easily debunked by the fact that the wound of Jesus is actually in the wrist, not in the hand. Lastly, you'll notice that Jesus is pierced in the side. The blood trickles down here on the front, but more importantly, the blood trickles down into the nape of his back, where the blood would, would actually hit the cloth as well. 
Now, if we look at this victim, we see an individual who's been flogged, crowned with thorns, crucified, pierced in the side. But I will tell you, my brothers and sisters, that is not why the Shroud of Turin is a miraculous image. Because I could crucify, crown with someone's sword. I, we could all flog someone, kill someone, and wrap them up in a cloth. But that's not why the Shroud of Turin is famous. And let's see why the Shroud of Turin is famous. You two, brother, you're going to hold this right here. This is why we need tall people. The reason why the Shroud of Turin is miraculous is not because of the blood. And I could fascinate you with the soil samples that are on here. I could fascinate you by going through all 27 pollens that are found on this cloth of plants that are only found within a 20-mile radius of Jerusalem itself. The Shroud of Turin is absolutely, it's the most studied religious artifact in the world. And it has never been able to be declared to not be the burial cloth of Jesus. But the most miraculous thing about the burial cloth of Jesus, the Shroud of Turin, is the image that is on it. If you look at the Shroud of Turin, it's not just blood marks, it's not just stains, it's actually the fact that you can actually see the face of a man. You can see shadow and his body. And the question has to be asked, how did those get on there? So I'd like to give you all a quick course on an ancient and archaic thing called photography. For any of you who have an iPhone, you possibly do not know what photography is. If you think that pixels have anything to do with photography, you clearly do not know what photography is. So let's talk about photography. For those of you who are really old, you remember days when we would go to a drugstore and buy a canister. And inside that canister was film. And you would buy them in 12 or 24 or 36 or 48. And then you would take the film and you would stretch it out across the back of your camera, quickly closing it. And why did you want to close it as quickly as possible? Because you didn't want the film to be what? Exposed to what? Because the light is what actually makes the picture. You see, in photography, you have a picture. The way that a picture is taken is that the shutter on the front of the camera, which is not a phone, opens and closes, and what is black is white, and what is white is black. And that is what is then put onto the film that is eventually developed. Sometimes, boys and girls, you would drop your film off and you wouldn't pick it up for another week. Sometimes you had forgotten what you had even taken pictures of. <coughs> but when you would pick up your pictures, along with the pictures were these brown strips of plastic, and those were called... Every picture has a negative where what is black is white and what is white is black. This is how photography takes place. And the way that it works is that a burst of light makes its way onto the film, but then when you shine light through this film onto photo paper, you then get the opposite, which is the positive and the negative. So the question is, what is the Shroud of Turin? The Shroud of Turin is a negative of Jesus himself. 
Because when you shine light through it, when you flip what is black is white, you actually have the positive image of the face of Jesus. Now, for those of you who want to say that the shot of Turin is a forgery, photography was not invented until 1837. So someone have to, would have to invent photography, make the shroud, and then not tell anyone that they had invented photography, or the idea of positive and negative images. So imagine that you're one of those nine apostles that betrayed our Lord in the upper room. You've seen that he is alive. You see what has happened to him. You see the blood. You see the nail marks, and you know that he is alive, and you have abandoned him. When I was a young boy, I used to do a lot of sinning. I had a brother, and I would lie. I'd beat him up. I'd get in trouble. I'd steal things. My mother stayed home from work. My dad worked very, very hard. Oftentimes, when I would get in, my trouble, I would get in trouble, my mother would say the infamous words, Jonathan, go to your room and wait until your dad gets home. Now, of course, parenting is very different today. There is no text messages. There is no email. My mom would never have called the office and disrupted my dad during his busy day of work. So I would wait. I would hear my dad pull in. I would hear my mom and dad talking. I would hear my dad walking up the stairs, and I would hear his hand on the door handle of my door, and I would cry. <laughs> what is the human natural emotion when we have wronged someone? That that person wants retaliation, retribution, that there is punishment, and I am to be filled with fear. If you had abandoned the Son of God himself, and you knew that he was alive, and that he was outside that door, the powerful thing is, my brothers and sisters, is that Jesus did not walk up the stairs. He did not put his hand on a door handle. But he walked through a door, and he said to those inside, Peace be with you. And in fact, he didn't say it once, he said it twice. He said, peace be with you. He said, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. As the Father sent me to be sacrificed, as the Father sent me as the Lamb of God, as the Father sent me to be crucified, as the Father sent me as an oblation for your sins, so now I send you. Peace be with you. I do not condemn you. I do not hate you. 
I forgive you. Peace be with you. Our human emotion of fear, of retribution, of retaliation, is not in God's mind. His message of mercy and love for us this Sunday is, peace be with you, I love you. Peace be with you, I welcome you. Peace be with you. Go and forgive as I have forgiven you. Go and love as I love you. That is the message of divine mercy that he gives to us. It's the message of mercy that he gave 2,000 years ago in the upper room. And it's the message that he gives every single one of you this day. When St. Faustina Kowalska asked an artist to paint the image of the divine mercy, he did not have the Shroud of Turin. And yet the face of the divine mercy is anatomically perfect to the skeletal features of the Shroud of Turin. That's right. That's the Holy Spirit. My brothers and sisters, what happened in that upper room is beyond our imagining. Because it's real. Because it's mercy itself. And on this Easter Sunday, we are called to realize that Jesus looks at every single one of you today and says, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, no, I send you. As your priest, I look at every single one of you and I say, peace be with you. At the heart of the Mass, The priest, once Jesus is truly present on the notice how throughout the entirety of the Mass, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen, the Lord be with you. There is only one time that a priest says, peace be with you at Mass. And that is when Jesus is present on the altar. And then we chant the Lamb of God. Because that is who he is. As we come to see the Lamb of God, as we come to eat the Lamb of God, as we come to be with the Lamb of God, may we hear him say to us today, I do not hate you. I do not smite you. I do not punish you. I love you. Peace be with you. And may that Easter joy fill our hearts with the desire to go out and live our faith in bold ways and in a world where there often seems to be no peace that we will be peace because we've received it from he who is peace itself. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah.